Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This week, we're going to be discussing something that is not directly energy-related, but is directly related to the philosophy underlying the different views of energy, or rather the philosophies underlying the different views of energy, because we are going to be talking about genetic modification slash genetic engineering. And in our culture today, these are often viewed as bad because they are supposedly unnatural. So what we're going to do today is have an expert on to discuss what are all the innovations, the life-enhancing, life-saving innovations that are happening in this field, uh, which is the side of the story we never hear. The side of the story we usually hear is a false side, which is that genetic manipulation, modification, engineering is somehow ruining our our world. And on today's show, we'll be talking to Amanda Maxim, who just published a paper illustrating literally dozens of, you know, I'm sure hundreds of innovations in genetic engineering, uh, particularly in plants and animals that are enhancing our lives or could enhance our lives. And we'll also discuss the threats to those advances. So stay tuned and we will be back with Amanda Maxim on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. I am joined now by Dr. Amanda Maxim, research associate and writer at the Ayn Rand Institute. Amanda, welcome to Power Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. Yeah, my pleasure. We've got a topic today that we haven't discussed on the show much, and I'm very eager to discuss it. So you have a report that uh, came out by CPIP. Now let's make the distinction. <laughs> they they, came, they named themselves after CIP. I mean, after chronologically. This. Oh. It's the Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property at George Mason University, which involves, among other people, our friend uh, Adam Mossoff. So you have a new report uh, for them called The Gene Revolution. What is this uh, about? What is the gene revolution? So the gene revolution refers to Um, what I think of as a revolution in food technology. So I think when most Americans zoom by the fields of corn and soybeans um, outside, they don't really, they don't realize um, that there's this revolution in food and food technology happening, um, literally springing forth from the ground. And so what I mean by the gene revolution is the, the ability that scientists now have to change or improve foods on the genetic level. So we're using our our growing understanding of what DNA is, how it works, uh, and we're able to use that understanding to sort of unlock the DNA of of various crop plants and to make improvements directly to to the genes. And this, this, it's also a revolution because um, the 
the technology has been incredibly successful. So something like 80 to 90% of our, the staple crops that we grow in the United States, so that's corn, cotton, soybeans, beets, um, are, are these new biotech or genetically engineered varieties. Well, obviously, there's a lot of controversy uh, about that whole phenomenon, which we'll talk about as we go. But you mentioned that we finally have the ability to modify things on a genetic level. But I think it's important to know the history that in terms of, of modifying in some way the genetics of these uh, you know, different, uh, of different living organisms, that's been the whole history of humanity, right? Yeah, that's right. So what I mean by that is, yeah, so we've been, we've been making improvements to food um, and I, you could think of that on, on the genetic level, level for millennia. Um, so what we have the ability to do now is to, to make those improvements more directly and more precisely than ever before. So if we go back to the, the history of, uh, you know, the ancient history of mankind, we've been making food, improvements to foods for, for millennium. And uh, so like our ancient ancestors, I think of this uh, this stone carved relief that was discovered in a, a palace in Assyria. And it depicts a, a man pollinating a date palm or a date tree by hand. And so what is he doing there? Well, he's, he's trying to, he, he's picking or selecting the plants, the variety that he likes the best, and ensuring that that, that, those, um, that, that plant will be propagated to future, uh, to future generations. Now, these, you know, our ancient ancestors didn't know anything about genes or DNA or what they were doing, um, but they were making improvements to plants um, on the genetic level. And yeah, so simply by you know, selecting the very best individuals for breeding, mankind has done something unexpectedly radical. Um, we've accomplished the, the, the changes that we've been able to accomplish um, in, in improving plants. So and just about everything that you look at in the grocery store, um, with very few exceptions, has been utterly, completely transformed um, from its wild ancestors by, by human hands, by human, um, by human thought, by human ingenuity, by human work. And so you take any of those plants, like for example, corn. Corn started out as a, a grass-like plant with tiny, kernels that were, you know, they weren't very flavorful, they weren't very nutritious, they were kind of hard in a tiny stony casing. Uh, and about 6,000 years ago, our ancestors in Mesoamerica began to, to transform corn um, simply by choosing the varieties they liked best and discarding the seeds that they didn't. And that's led to the varieties of sweet corn, bicolor corn, blue corn that we have today. So you're right that plants already contain, or at least the food that we eat already contains an incredible amount of technology. To paraphrase J.M. Moulet, he's a, a plant biologist uh, in, in Spain. He says that our modern crop plants have as much technology in them as an iPhone. And, and that's true. Um, so it's sort of a, a brief, you know, overview of what we've been doing for, for many, many years. But of, of course, we didn't really understand or know what we were accomplishing or how we could go about that task um, faster and more directly. It seems particularly the last part is true. I mean, as, as you went on, 
I mean, people, they'd be doing it for a reason. It wouldn't just be accidental. I mean, maybe at some point. But in terms of things like breeding animals and whatnot, I think of that as just, you know, turning wolves into dogs. Just sure. the idea that the that we've been transforming nature and particularly plants and animals for uh, thousands and thousands of years and that if we went back 20,000 years, uh, the the balance of species in many ways would be unrecognizable, certainly th the things that we're eating. That's right. I think of that movie, you ever seen the movie Encino Man? Uh, I never saw it. I remember the trailer. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, what, Sean Astin, Polly Shore, Brendan Fraser. The idea is that they dig up a caveman, uh, two high school students dig up a caveman in their in their backyard and he thaws out and comes back to life. And in the movie, the caveman is really, really excited about a candy bar and he goes to a gas station. He's really excited about a Slurpee. But I think a caveman would be completely just blown away by something that we think of as, as common as an ear of corn because those things, they didn't exist in the, in, in the ancient world. They were, they were utterly, you know, they would have been utterly foreign to um, our ancient ancestors. One, one I think, uh, point just about the nature of nature that this raises is that nature is not rooting for human beings. It's not like nature has engineered itself to provide us everything we need and to uh, and to remove everything that threatens us. Of course, we evolved, so we have a, a capacity to survive. But it, it's not as if you know. There, there's really this idea today that nature just uh, came up with these foods in a purposeful way for us. So you'll see at a farmer's market, like the local so-called organic farmer with this ear of corn will say, you know, this is nature's bounty. And you just think, or, you know, the tomato that doesn't kill you, unlike the old tomatoes. It's just that there's just this complete mystical idea that nature wanted us to have this bounty of food. And, and it's really an injustice to all of the people uh, in the past who, who painstakingly engineered this food for us. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, recently I saw um, a, a natural kind of news website or natural nutrition website. They shared a, a photo of this vibrant, colorful mushroom with a caption that said, you know, we can't make food better than nature. Um, but the problem is the, the mushroom that they chose to feature is one that's highly poisonous to people. So I think you don't have to dig very very deep to see the point that no nature produces all sorts of of things that are dangerous to to humans so ricin um, botulism um, gossipol plants produce all sorts of you know, dangerous substances uh, and things that will will outright kill you and so I think of when if people want the very you know, to eat things that are safe and healthy and nutritious, that's something that requires human thought and ingenuity in order to make happen. It's not the case that you can simply, you know, so even if you were to simply tra traipse out into a forest, right, and even if you do that, so what is it, what do, what do they tell you, the first thing they tell you as a, as a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout going into the forest for the first time? 
they tell you, you know, don't eat the wild berries, don't eat wild mushrooms, because what nature has to offer could potentially kill you. But so even if you go out into to nature and you say you, you want to find the most natural food um, available and, or figure out something to eat, even that requires you to use your, your thought. You have to figure out, um, you know, is this something that's going to be good to eat or bad to eat, dangerous? How do I know? I mean, you might be out there looking at your iPhone, comparing pictures of mushrooms. Um, you know, so you're right that what, what nature has to offer can be potentially dangerous. Uh, and it requires people to think about it and to, to invent and to make things uh, that are safe for human consumption if that's what if that's you know if that's what we want so looking at what's touted as sort of natural foods at a farmer's market there's nothing that's natural about them and that's not to say that you know that's a bad thing I think people have the idea that natural is is better um, I have you know, to the extent that that concept even makes sense I think the opposite is true that to the extent people have applied their, their minds to improving upon foods, that's the kind of food that I want to eat. Uh, one more just thought to connect this to some of what we hear in popular culture. Uh, you know, you'll well, there's a store that everyone is familiar with or a chain called Whole Foods. Yeah. And part of the, the philosophy behind that is if you just eat whole foods, uh, particularly you know, whole plants, then you can't go wrong. And I was, uh, I've been reading some nutrition books lately, and one of them, uh, well, I might as well mention it, called uh, The China Study, uh, which I could talk about for a while, the issues with that. But the, it's interesting that the author just puts his prescription as just eat whole foods. Like, that's, that's simple guidance. And I was thinking, how could it possibly be true that all of these different whole foods are nutritionally equal or even uh, good. And even if there is some uh, positive relationship between certain whole foods and nutrition, why not just put it in terms of the, the standard of value is, is human health, not the standard of value is, is it a whole food? And as you give these examples, I just think, well, there are lots and lots of whole foods that are wholly poisonous and that will, will kill us. So it goes to the point that I discuss in a moral case for fossil fuels and a lot on this show and other places where you have to decide what is the standard by which you're evaluating things. And it's, 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 uh, it's toxic to rely on natural as your standard. For, as you indicated, it's, it's an incoherent concept insofar as it excludes human beings as, as you know, portraying them as unnatural. But if it means the non-man-made you know, the goal in life should be to do as non, as many non-man-made related things as possible. That's that's toxic. So I like those examples of the poisonous mushrooms. And, and I think the Boy Scouts thing is, is such a great example because it's the kind of thing that we're taught as common sense, but we don't factor into our thinking because these these false generalizations have have taken over. And it's the same thing, I think, with something like carbon dioxide in the atmosphere where it doesn't even occur to people, hey, maybe that could be good for plant life. Like we all know that CO2 is is, is uh, good for plant life and that plants generally want more of it, so to speak. But uh, we forget that when we're dealing with these these uh, these generalizations. That's I, I love these examples that you bring up because uh, they help break 
that uh, ultimately incoherent but seemingly plausible framework of the natural as the good. Yeah, and in general, you know, I think there's this aversion to technology in food. I mean, if we think about technologies in other aspects of our lives, we seem to be all for it, right? Like, we don't accept too few USB ports on our computers. When we get sick, we want the very best that medical technology has to offer. But when it comes to food, it seems like the attitude is different, that people, to the extent that they think a food has, has technology in it, they don't want to have anything to do with it. They, want, they, they have the perception that an, um, a so-called natural food is automatically going to be better. Um, and so that's one of the issues that I see coming up again and again um, surrounding genetic engineering, is this perception that people have. And I think the opposite um, you know, I hope I can convince people of the exact opposite, that um, that if we want safe and healthy and uh, and good food to eat, that we should be we should be celebrating the, the technology that um, that's going into into creating it. So that's part of what I wanted to do in this paper, simply by highlighting I picked 29 different um, genetic uh, genetically engineered uh innovations or technologies just to show the the breadth of what's possible with this um, with this latest form of, of food innovation well then let's go into some of them let's let's uh, plan on doing five so I'll okay. let you pick them I mean, <laughs> you pick four I'll pick one uh. <laughs> all right so so hard to choose five um, all right. Well, I think we, we definitely have to talk about human insulin because it was it one of the very, I think it's the very first application of this new technology of genetic engineering. Um, in 1978, it was announced that the first, that very first laboratory produced human insulin was invented. So up until that point, um, if you were a, a type one diabetic, uh, and a type one diabetic, what, what does that mean? Well, it means that your body doesn't produce a human hormone called insulin. Insulin helps you to process um, sugar, which is a it's a necessary hormone for, for survival. And if you had uh, diabetes, the type of diabetes that requires you to take insulin shots, you were up until that point relying on insulin harvested from pigs and cows, from the pancreases of pigs and cows. And it took 8,000 pounds of animal pancreases to produce just a single pound of human insulin Whoa. or of, of insulin. And the insulin was not, it's not, um, it's not exactly the same uh, hormone as you find in the human body. So when, when was this that it took the 8,000 pounds of pancreas? So right in, in the seventies. So right before the invention of, of genuine human insulin using genetic engineering. So you see this, this necessary product you know, for, for human survival, for people who have to, in order to lift this death sentence of diabetes, you need this, this, um, this hormone. But it's expensive, it's inefficient to, to produce, and you know, there, there becomes a point where there's the threat of, of shortages that looms. So the very first innovation of genetic engineering was not applied to, to a, a plant or an animal, but to a simple creature, the 
the common E. coli bacteria. So within a bacteria, there are, there are rings of genetic material called plasmids. And those act like, I think of it like the foreman of a factory. So they instruct the bacteria um, what to produce uh, as a waste product. So bacteria eat, these, these type of bacteria eat typically sugar. They take in um, you know, nutrients from, from their, their environment and they process them internally and they produce something as a waste product. And so we discovered, you know, we've been using microorganisms to kind of do our bidding for a really long time. So we've been using them to, to turn milk into yogurt, to, to brew beer. And we've discovered that, look, what could be, what, what's one organism's trash? It could be another's treasure. And if we could take these, you know, rings of, of plasmid and, um, and engineer them and direct the, the bacteria what to produce, we can make them into our little, you know, miniature beasts of burden for us. And that's exactly what we did. So we had to figure out, all right, what is the gene, the, the sequence of DNA that codes for or that will cause the bacteria to produce genuine human insulin? And we ins uh, scientists inserted that into, into E. coli bacteria. And they produce, uh, and, and now today these, you know, bacteria or um, we've also done the same thing with yeast, brew up, you know, veritable rivers of genuine human insulin, um, you know, just in this limitless, seemingly limit, limitless supply. Uh, this, and this is just the first. So today, I think seven of the top 10 drugs, um, best-selling drugs, um, are biotech in origin. So they're created in a, in a similar fashion. So we've able to, been able to create um, vaccines, rare human hormones, medicines, all using this exact, uh, this, this, this technology of genetic engineering. And I just, I love the, the, the way that we've gone from something being expensive and inefficient and scarce to something being plentiful and, um, and common and cheap. And that's the power, um, that was like the first example of the power that this, um, that this new technology has. Before we go into the other examples, I'm interested in the point at which the new technology begins. And I'll, I want to talk about it in the context of agriculture first, because that's what I happen to know more about than I do about the other aspects. So we hear about the Green Revolution, nothing to do with environmentalism. This is the Green yeah. Revolution of Norman Borlaug and you know, different, uh, different sorts of genetic engineering techniques applied to different plants. But is that is that uh, the technology involved today, or is there a hard line evolution in in our ability uh, to genetically modify things? I, the, so what Norman Borlaug was doing, um, he was doing his research mainly in the 1940s, and he was uh, I mean he was he was you know changing plants on on the genetic level. Um, he was, but he was basically doing it in the way, um, in the tradition of like what Gregor Mendel told, uh, showed us how to do. So uh, he was amassing uh, wheat, different varieties of wheat from uh, around the world. So he took wheat from Japan and Colombia, and he was you know, breeding 
crossbreeding different wheats, I think he did something like 6,000 crosses in total, in order to find the perfect wheat that he was searching for. So what was he searching for? Well, he wanted um, a wheat that was resistant to, to disease and that could grow um, to seriously uh, uh, increase yields. And so what Borlaug was doing um, is not considered, and in his Green Revolution, was not considered um, the same as what is commonly thought of as genetic engineering. The genetic engineering, um, that technology came about in the, the late 70s um, is when we started to have an inkling that we could take, you know, so, so what Borlaug was doing was he was essentially by doing so many meticulous crossbreedings, uh, putting into his wheat genes that encode for traits that that were desirable, but it's a you know it's a meticulous kind of trial and error process. You're mixing a whole bunch of genes together in the process of sexual reproduction. Genetic engineering is a precision tool. So what we're talking about is taking just a few genes, maybe two or three genes um, that encode for for traits that you um, for desirable traits and inserting them into uh, into the seed of a plant. So it's it's a much more precise way of of accomplishing uh, a desirable change. And that technology didn't um, I think the very first crop plants were planted that were genetically engineered weren't weren't commercially planted until the late 1990s. So there's quite a bit of time between Norman Borlaug's invention and the real advent of genetic engineering. Got it. All right. Well, I changed my mind. I'm going to pick more of the, the examples th okay. than I intended to. Uh, so the one I want to cover next is flu vaccines, because for those who don't know, flu used to kill lots and lots of people. Yes, and I got a flu vaccine, and I also caught the flu. So this one is you know, particularly dear to, to my heart, or at least potentially dear to my heart. So now, the way that flu vaccines are created now, they're grown in eggs. And the process takes you know, six to nine months. So that means that the flu vaccine that you get on any given year was created nine months previously which means that it's a prediction of what viruses might be present uh, and might be common during the upcoming flu season. But such a long time has to pass in order to, to grow these flu vaccines that the, the guess is often wrong and the flu vaccine can be ineffective. So genetic engineering, um, the technologies applied to flu vaccines is really promising. So in the 2014 flu season, there were a couple of flu vaccines that were shipped that were grown using the technology of genetic engineering. So what, what scientists have done is they've, they've programmed um, animal cells in order to have them produce the, the, the viral antibodies um, or the, the flu vaccine. And this process can be done in a lot, you know, much shorter time. Uh, a company that is growing them in tobacco plants, in genetically engineered tobacco plants, is able to produce, uh, they were able to do, produce 10 million H1N1 flu one vaccines in just four weeks. So that means that if, you know, the, hopefully in the future, 
the flu vaccine will be more effective because we'll be able to produce it a lot faster using this new technology. And even flu vaccines themselves, I mean, even the previous iterations are, are quite unnatural. I mean, nature was perfectly happy to let, what was it, you know, millions and millions of Americans die from the flu in the early 20th century. Yeah, that's right. There is nothing natural about a, uh, about a, a vaccine. Um, you know, telling nature, hey, don't, you know, I don't want that, I don't want that virus to replicate within my body and I'm going to do something to, you know, to protect myself. Yeah, there's nothing natural about that. We're just getting better and better at doing it faster and doing it, um, you know, doing it in a more, in a, with a new customizability. All right, you pick the next innovation. Okay. Uh, uh, so many. Okay, how about Arctic apples? Uh, so last year, there's a small biotech company in Canada called Okanagan Specialty Fruits. And they invented something that's you know, simple yet spectacular. These are that's the so-called Arctic apple. And what's special about the Arctic apple? Well, these apples don't turn brown when sliced. So when a regular apple is sliced, bitten, or bruised, two chemicals within the flesh of the apple combine and react and cause the, the flesh to turn brown. Now, there's nothing that's, you know, the brown color doesn't indicate that there's anything rotten or bad about the apples. You know, my mom was, my mom was right when she, when she told me that, but the, these brown apple slices are, are unappealing. You know, they've long been the scourge of the, the childhood lunchbox. So, and, and, you know, people, you can get sliced apples in, you know, Happy Meals or on top of salads, but in order to suppress the browning reaction, which people don't, they don't want brown apples on top of their, um, uh, you know, on their salads, you have to spray them with an expensive coating that costs a lot of money, it costs about just as much as the, the apples themselves, and it can change the flavoring. So Arctic apples make that a thing of the past. So what scientists at Okanagan did is they inserted an extra copy of uh, an apple gene in order to suppress the production of one of those two chemicals. And so when you slice an Arctic apple, um, there's not a possibility of this enzymatic browning to occur. And so you can, it's a, it's a simple yet spectacular invention. And it could save the food industry, could save the food industry millions. Um, ok Okanagan sent me some of these Arctic apples this, this fall, and so I was able to, to test them out and play with them. So I'm, I'm excited about this product. It's also one of the few products that's sort of a direct-to-consumer item. Um, you think of most of the genetically engineered crops are corn and soybeans, and they go into, in, into the food products that we eat, but we're not really aware that they're, you know, what they are, who grew them, or where they come from, but uh, Arctic apples are sort of a, a product that you're going to be able to, uh, genetically engineered uh, food that you're going to be able to, to pick up and know that it's um, created using this new technology, and I think that's really cool too. All right, my next one is you talk about bringing back the mighty chestnut. Uh, yes. Yeah, so you don't realize it, but in... In America, when you know, settlers first came to, um, to the United States, 
the American chestnut tree would have been ubiquitous. It would have just been a part of the forest. There was something like over 4 billion of these trees um, that produced billions of pounds of chestnuts. And they're called them, they call them the redwood of the east because they're a really big tree. But these trees were taken down by uh, an enemy that's, uh, you know, many times their junior. Um, they are taken down by a fungus. And in 1904, people started to realize that, hey, these, these chestnut trees are starting to die off. And so what happened was um, on imported chestnut trees from Asia, um, they happened to be immune to this, this, uh, this fungus or this blight. They, the fungus was introduced into the Americas, and it, um, you know, the disease spread across um, from chestnut tree to chestnut tree. And by 1950, the the tree was virtually is is virtually wiped out. I mean, you can go on Wikipedia today and find uh, a short list of the remaining, the known remaining American chestnut trees. Uh, I think they found one something like 15 years ago. The, the Park Service found one, and they kept it a secret because they're they're just they're that rare. Um, but there are a couple of researchers at, at the university, the State University of New York, who are using genetic engineering to try to bring, bring back the chestnut tree. So, and this is a long, involved process, right? So they have to they have to map the genome of the chestnut tree, figure out how are we going to get how are we going to what kind of genes can we transfer? Maybe we can harvest uh, a few genes from, from other trees that can make the chestnut tree um, immune to this fungus. But they discovered that there's a gene from wheat, actually, that, um, that kind of detoxifies the, the fungus. And, and it shows, it's showing a lot of promise in terms of making the American chestnut immune to this, this blight. So they've inserted this, this gene into the into a seedling, and they're growing now. They were planted in 2013. A group of 800 of these to see how they fare against against the chestnut blight. So we could actually bring back um, a tree using this technology that we haven't seen for you know over 50 years. To make the same kind of philosophical point that I've made about 18 times already today, it's interesting how. Uh, it's, it's a different dimension, though. It, uh, nature doesn't give us even the preservation of the parts of nature that we like best. So if we like something like the mighty chestnut tree, if it has nostalgia, which is a lot of what I think attracts people to environmentalism, you know, oh, I want the world to look like what it did when I grew up. So that's a messed up notion in many ways, but it can be, yeah, gosh, this tree is symbolic. I really like it. It's beautiful. Then guess what? We get to improve nature by making those kinds of, of choices. Uh, and, you know, we also get to do things like get rid of mosquitoes that we don't want to uh, have around. But it's just another example of how, how technology allows us to get more of what we want and more of what is good for us and, and less of what we don't. And that, that extends completely to our enjoyment of the rest of nature. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, nature, it doesn't care. that This fungus doesn't care that we 
we prefer American chestnut trees. Um, it, it's, you know, it's going to wipe, it, it has wiped them out completely, you know, regardless of how, how beautiful we think they are or, you know, our desire to preserve them. And I think it is, it is interesting that in order to preserve the nature that we like best, um, you know, re again, it requires us to do something about that. All right. What is your next one? Uh, we should talk about the, the salmon. So uh, this is the Aqua Advantage salmon. It's number 20 on my list. Um, in order, so, so Americans, we, we consume, you know, a, a lot of salmon and most of it is, comes from a farm, but the, the farm salmon, uh, it has this, it has this problem that doesn't make it, you know, an, an ideal farm animal, which is that the salmon, despite having abundant resources in a farm setting, so the farmers are feeding the salmon year round, the salmon are programmed to only grow during the summer. So what scientists have done is they've inserted just a few genes again, um, two genes from another breed of salmon and one from a common fish in order to um, you know, turn on the growth of the salmon all year round. So these farm salmon grow in about half the time. So most salmon take about three years to mature and these take about a year and a half. So again, this is a, it's a you know, it's a fairly simple idea, um, but it's, it's also an incredible, in some ways, an incredible leap forward to, to improving, you know, a, a farm animal that we've, that we've been harvesting for a while now. So, and one of the reasons I want to talk about the salmon is that it's also, it's also a tragic story because these salmon were um, invented and the company that, that made them, Aquabounty, they applied for permission to sell them back in 1995. And so that's 20 years ago. And it's only recently, um, just a couple months ago, that the salmon were finally approved. Um, you know, essentially, the government gave the company that in, invented them permission to sell the salmon in the grocery store in, in the United States. And gosh, I, that is an incredibly long amount of time. I mean, if we think about technology in other aspects of our lives, like what other technology was invented in 1995? Um, well, I think Bluetooth was invented in 94. The DVD came out in 1995. Cell phones at that time were you know, the exact size and shape of a brick. Um, and I can't imagine if any of those technologies, uh, if, if the government were to say, okay, first of all, you have to apply for permission in order to sell these, and you have to wait 20 years for that permission to be, to be finally granted. I mean, that is a, in my mind, is a tragedy. Uh, and it's, it, it speaks to the sort of the fear and hysteria that surround um, this technology. I mean, so yes, why are these fish treated this way? Well, as people view them as, as being unnatural, they view them as being dangerous. 
um, despite the fact they're just as safe to eat as, um, as you know, any other farm salmon. Um, they have the same nutritional value. They taste the same. Um, but, you know, there's this movement of people that have labeled them as, as Franken salmon. And unfortunately, they've had influence over, um, you know, the regulatory process. And, and 20 years later, we have this technology that if it was anything else, you know, it would be, it would be hopelessly obsolete. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that the, the salmon was finally approved, but I'm happy in the way that I would be happy um, to see an innocent man go free from prison after 20 years. That's a good analogy. I think that the, the technophobia is the norm in many ways. I mean, the, the example of digital technology is the, is the big partial exception. Mm. But I mean, certainly if you look at energy technology, there's massive technophobia with hydrocarbons in general and fracking in particular. You see it with nuclear energy. You see the nature worship uh, with the uh, opposition to hydroelectric power. You see that even with uh, opposing solar and wind installations when they're actually built. Uh, you see that in opposing the power lines. So most, most technologies, most forms of manipulating nature have uh, a difficult time. I think that with the digital technologies, they have the one advantage of them is that they're considered mental or like they're somehow detached from the physical, which usually betrays a complete misunderstanding or non-understanding of what is actually uh, backing them up from the manufacturing processes to the whole infrastructure that they run on, whether it's, you know, wireless uh, signals or, or the electrical power that they need to charge. Or, uh, so there's, there's that. And also I think that the anti-technology movement, which is really what environmentalism is, they, they lost that battle and they, they decided it was best to go after other things. I mean, certainly in the 70s and early 80s, they were very anti-electricity, which mm. is obviously central to the digital uh, revolutions. Without those electrical signals, you're not getting any digital uh, technology. And you, you do see uh, elements of people bemoaning our digital era. Now, with all of these things, there are misuses of things, and I certainly bemoan certain abuses of the digital era, including people being on email every eight seconds and that kind of thing. Uh, but it is, it is under attack, and you'll see it under attack also uh, as people realize all the mining and manufacturing that are involved. You know, these different companies are, are under attack. Now, in some ways, they take the lead, and they, they try to preempt it, and they give lots and lots of money, which is a way of delaying your execution. Uh, so there, there's all sorts of things going on, but I, I think in the culture, there is a very strong trend towards stopping new productive developments, uh, you know, justified by technophobia or, or nature worship. And it's unfortunately not just in this field. Yeah, I mean, I think a good or an interesting analogy here or example is when you know Ben Franklin invented his lightning rod, uh, you know, he discovered electricity, and then immediately, um, just a few months later, had in, had made this life-saving invention. It's it's a you know it's a piece of metal that you stick on top of your your building or on top of your bell tower, 
and it directs the lightning safely from, you know, from the sky to the ground. And it could have immediately started saving lives. But people, you know, in this Victorian age back then were, um, you know, were afraid of it. They thought, look, you're diverting God's wrath. Surely he's going to strike out in another way. And, you know, churches didn't want to put them on, on top of their bell towers and, you know, the bell ringers continued to go out in a storm and, and, and to die and buildings continued to catch on fire for a lot longer than they, than they had to. And, and mobs of angry people would go and, um, I think they went and ripped one off of the, the top of the, the science building in, in, um, in Italy. Uh, and you, know, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, oh, we, we're not like that anymore. You know, we, we accept new technology. We're not, we're, we're not so, you know, irrationally afraid of things any longer. But I, you know, I sometimes wonder about that, looking around at what, you know, that just going through the grocery store and seeing all of the food labels that tout the food as, as being natural. And, and now you see more and more of these non-GMO verified labels. Um, something like 20,000 products that are, that are now labeled um, as not containing, essentially what it's saying is, look, these products don't contain this this dangerous technology that you should be avoiding. Um, so, you know, I think people think that I mean, we're beyond this, this, this uh, you know, the, the old timey sentiments of being afraid of electricity or elevators or, or lightning rods or whatever it was. But I often wonder if that's really true. I think it's really important to have those examples. Is there, are there any good articles you can think of that have examples? I didn't, I didn't know that lightning rod. Uh, example. Uh, no, I can recommend a book on the the lightning rod. Um, but I, but I mean these general instances oh. of technophobia throughout history because it 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 gives some perspective uh, on how human beings tend to act in response to new developments, uh, given a certain philosophy anyway, and can help us be clearer on what we're doing. Yeah, I haven't seen that article. I'd love to see it. If somebody knows <laughs> knows of one, please tweet it at me. Otherwise, I just kind of gather these examples as I see them as they come up. Uh, well, yeah, so I'm looking forward to your article by that, and then we'll do okay. another power hour. Uh, <laughs> no, I, there's, there's all of these. I, I, I'm seriously going to, after this, going to figure out, at least write a put to compile just at least a rough internal database of just instances of technophobia and nature nature worship throughout history and examples of how different parts of nature want to kill us and instances of how we've improved different parts of nature so it they either don't kill us or help us a lot i think that would be a good uh you'd probably get hundreds of things but i think almost nobody knows them and and because nature has been improved so much prior to our lifetimes, it's hard to have the, the perspective that would come from uh, really living in any way close to, to unaltered nature. Yeah, that's right. I think in every, every age, there are small and large examples of you know, irrational fear surrounding some new, uh, often life-saving, life but at least life-enhancing technology that we now consider good. And those, 
you know, that has to be fought with the, you know, the bright light of science and the bright light of reason. And unfortunately, in our age, I see that uh, that scenario playing out as applied to food. All right, let's take one more example. I want you to talk about golden rice, and then I'm going to play devil's advocate. <laughs> okay, so golden rice is an excellent example. Um, so the World Health Organization estimates that between 250,000 and 500,000 children go blind each year for lack or for want of vitamin A. And Okay, so 500,000, that's just... And those just, children are all in the U.S. in places that have the evil agribusiness, presumably. Yes. No. So, yeah. So those are children that are primary in, you know, the non-capitalist world. They're in, in China, the Philippines, um, Africa, uh, places around, uh, around the world that, we, that are, you know, in, in poor non-capitalist conditions. And, you know, 500,000, that's... That's just a number, but to try to make that real, that's like the entire population of Atlanta going blind every year for for lack of a, a vitamin that in the United States, as you point out, we we take completely for granted. And what's even worse is that about half of those children will be dead within a year because their bodies aren't getting the nutrition that they need and you know, that makes them susceptible to, to other disease and unfortunately to, to death. So that's exactly the problem that two genetic engineers, Ingo Petrinkus and Peter Baer, they hope to tackle with genetic engineering. So they started searching for a way to fortify rice with beta carotene back in the 80s. Now, why choose rice? Well, rice is a staple crop that for, for billions of people. And what these two scientists realize is that a lot, of, a lot of people and a lot of these children that are going blind, it's not that they aren't getting sufficient calories. They may, have, they, have plenty of, they may have plenty of rice to eat, but the problem is that rice doesn't contain the full um, panoply of, uh, of vitamins that are necessary for human survival. And one of the things that rice lacks is um, beta carotene or provitamin A. So that's a provitamin A, or be, uh, also known as beta carotene. It's called provitamin A because when you eat it, your body can convert that into the vitamin A that you need in order to survive. Um, beta carotene is quite common. It's in a number of vegetables like um, spinach and carrots. And so, Patricus and Bayer had this idea, well, if we can engineer rice to produce beta carotene, then you know, people who are eating rice, just at, and exclusively rice, they'll still be getting the vitamin A that they need to survive. And so the people who are on the edge, we're talking about incredibly poor people on the edge of, of malnutrition, on the edge of blindness, could get that boost that they need to prevent them from going blind. So in 1999, they had come up with a prototype that they called golden rice. It's called golden rice because it's got this, um, a golden color from the beta carotene that it, that it produces. Um, so the, their idea was simple, that they, they're offering it for free to any third world farmer 
who wants to plant it. And the idea is that you know a, a farmer will plant it, they'll you know give it to their they'll they'll plant it the next year, they'll pass the seeds on to their neighbors, and this rice could spread like like a, a wildfire, like a golden light, you know, lighting up the world, preventing real people from going blind. Now, the the rice was invented in the so in the late 90s, and the the tragic thing here is that it has helped precisely nobody. Um, every time that there's a, a, a field trial, so that means that the people um, are growing the rice to see how does it do in the field. Um, they're growing the rice with the purpose of um, feeding it to, to people in order to see exactly how much, uh, how much the rice can help the, the malnutritious. Every time um, there's a, 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 a field trial or a feeding trial plan, environmentalist groups like Greenpeace are there. And so they've gone to China, they've gone to the Philippines, places where they could really benefit from uh, you know, people eating this rice, and they convince the government, the local population, that this rice is poisonous, that um, they're, they're just, they're simply, Amer you know, test guinea pigs for, I don't know, American uh, poison or something like that. And when that doesn't work, they, they go and uh, take weed whackers and mow down, and mow down the, the test fields of golden rice. So I think this, this example in particular is very revealing of what the anti-GMO movement or the, and, and the environmentalist movement, um, I view the anti-GMO movement as kind of a, you know, an offshoot or a part of the environmentalist movement. I really think it, it shows obviously and horribly what they're, what they're about or, or what they're not about. What is their rationalization? I mean, I, I hear stuff like, well, you know, it's, you're manipulating and you, you can't know. We have to be cautious. We need to follow the precautionary principle. We can't know what will happen. You know, what if, you know, we start spreading around something and it turns out to be dangerous. What substance is there to this? So, yes. I, I mean, there, I think when it comes down to it, there what they're saying is a big what if, you know, so you get Greenpeace saying things like these, these genetic, genetically engineered plants, they're an abomination of nature, they could spread through nature and cause destruction, um, they're a threat to biodiversity, it's this very nebulous thing where you, they're raising a question of what if something terrible were to happen, and I think because, you know, this, environmentalist notion that if you mess with nature, nature will bite back, nature will strike back, um, you know, in some horrible way, because that idea is sort of prevalent. They can raise the specter of doubt, and most people answer the what if, what if something bad could happen with, by imagining all these horrible things that could happen. So I don't see, I, I haven't seen the evidence. So in we're talking about a tool for improving plants. And so when you're talking about golden rice specifically, um, 
you, you really have to ask yourself, what is this horrible thing that's going to happen? It's like eating a bowl of rice, you know, with some spinach mixed in. Um, you know, I haven't, it, there is no evidence that this rice is, um, you know, unsafe to eat or is poisonous. And so what is their justification? I don't know. They've got, they've got a, a number of things. You know, I kind of think they've got this sort of three, three prongs to their pitchfork. You know, one is they have an anti-business sentiment. So um, they don't like the fact that, that companies like agribusiness may be producing these for profit. And they find that to be, um, you know, automatically something suspicious about that. They have this natural is better attitude. So they don't, they, like there's this Indian eco-activist, Vandana Shiva, and she says, you know, a number of things that are revealing about what the movement, what they really think and what their philosophy is. Um, but she says, look, you can't move a gene into, uh, into a plant and say that you're improving nature. What you're doing is polluting nature. And so they view it as, you know, a pollution of nature. And if you mess with nature, nature will strike back. And so that's the third, sort of the third thing that they, that they, that they rely on is, yeah, this idea that nature is this, you know, goddess to be worshipped. And it's, uh, you know, not a benevolent goddess, but a, you know, something that will, will strike back at you if you, if you mess with her. So, and, and when you think about genetic engineering, I mean, how much more intimately can you tamper with nature? We are taking a few genes and moving them from one plant to another, from one organism to another, not for, you know, not to improve nature for nature's sake, not to, uh, you know, for, for the purpose of improving plants for human beings, for human consumptions with the with the idea that we'll plant and eat those those things in the future, and we'll continue to um, to to improve upon upon nature. So there's really not a way that you can more intimately, as what they would call, tamper with nature. And so the idea is, if you do that, something bad or something disastrous is going to happen. We haven't seen that. People have eaten trillions of meals containing biotech ingredients. They haven't caused um, any any ill health effect. Uh, but there's always the specter of what if, and I think unfortunately people buy into that. Yeah, and also even if you, even if something did go wrong, and it's not specified at all what that would be or what the magnitude would be, it, people act as if oh well, you would somehow have to eat that food everywhere forever, and just everyone would suffer from it, as against not using it in the future, you know, whether, whether you had to do something extreme, like burn, you know, some fields down or whatever. So it's just the, the whole mentality that, so there's the anti-technology mentality that's true of the so-called environmentalist movement, but then there's just the, what it's, it's led to in the public is a, is a, an ever-present fear of the risks of technology, mostly imagined, and then a non-fear of the risks of not using new technology and you see the price here is all these kids and people are not taught to think about them they're just taught to think oh well I'm natural I like to go to Whole Foods and that makes me uh, a good person and I think it's very important for uh, those people to be made aware of the implications of the ideas they're supporting well we 
we are running out uh, of the power hour. So Amanda, before we go, uh, tell us where can we find more information on you or where, where should people to go to get more of your work? Okay, so you can find me, uh, a good place to find my, my work and my commentary is on the Ayn Rand Institute blog, Voices for Reason, at voicesforreason.com. You can tweet at me. I'm on the, the tweeter horn. Um, my handle is at Dr. Maxim. That's M-A-X-H-A-M. And this particular article is on the George Mason University Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property. So you can find that on the web as well. All right, Amanda, Dr. Maxim, thanks so much for being on the program. Yeah, my pleasure, Alex. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Amanda Maxim for being on the program. We took off one week. It's the first time in a while we took off a week. Uh, among other things, I was giving a lot of speeches last week. I gave 10 speeches in five days and actually eight speeches in two days and even within that five speeches in one day. So that was an exciting week. If you're interested in having me speak, you can always go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking and perhaps something will work out. All right. Biggest thing I want to promote these days is America's Energy Opportunity. So go to americasenergyopportunity.com, look at our platform, sign our petition slash ultimatum, and please, please, please tell friends and family. Uh, I think this is just so important to make energy and the energy opportunity that we have in America a prominent issue in this election. It's not right now, and we've started off pretty slowly. I haven't spent that much time promoting it, but I definitely need uh, everyone promoting it, so everyone who believes in it. So uh, anything you can do to get dozens, even hundreds of people aware of it would be great. If you have any ideas for me, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. And if any of your ideas work out, definitely email me at alex at industrialprogress.net and let me know what you did. I'll, I'll really appreciate that. All right. Uh, in terms of the content of the show, I think we covered just about everything I wanted to. For me, it's this uh, this issue of of humanism versus naturism, we can call it, is just really the issue I'm most passionate about uh, and I've been most passionate about for a while. And I think you're going to see that with Center for Industrial Progress and perhaps future ventures, this is just going to be more and more of what we stand for. And I think that'll enable us to reframe a lot of different debates, not just the energy debate. All right, so that's it for this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can reach me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Um, again, americasenergyopportunity.com. Uh, best way to get all of our information is at industrialprogress.com. Enter in your email address to be on our mailing list. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, whether it's the Alex Epstein account, the Center for Industrial Progress account, the I Love Fossil Fuels account, or the I Love Nuclear account. We have all of those on both platforms. All right, next week we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.